This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 73, June 14, 1984. Last two times I have talked a bit about uh, John Bell Hood, the Southern General. I'd like to return very briefly to the subject. In so doing, let me add that uh, the historians who have dealt with John Bell Hood are Southern historians. We do have some Southern writers who have really a hostile view of the South and are malicious. They are out to prove somehow that they are above being Southern and very often write ugly and uh, debunking type uh, articles and books about the history of the South. These books definitely are not in that tradition. Some books uh, have been written very seriously in passing, let me say, that deal with the South and deal with one strand, sometimes an ugly strand, and do an able job of it. Uh, one such uh, book is Southern Honor, Ethics and Behavior in the Old South by Bertram Wyatt Brown, W-Y-A-T-T dash Brown, published in 1982 and reprinted in 1983 in paperback. It's an Oxford University Press book. It's a serious study, but while I believe the book is thoroughly accurate, I do believe the subtitle, Ethics and Behavior in the Old South, is misleading because what this book deals with, and it's very unpleasant reading, is one strand in the South. The pseudo-aristocracy that self-consciously imitated the cavalier tradition of England. As a result, they represented uh, pseudo-Christianity as well as a pseudo-aristocracy and had moral standards that were very clearly far from anything desirable. Now, if someone were to deal with the manners and morals, for example, the old Calvinists in the South, uh, such as the Jones family, whose uh, diary, Children of Pride, was published a few years ago, as well as the letters to the Sun, a Georgian at Princeton, very remarkable books, giving us a very uh, marvelous picture of Southern Christianity. Well, I got sidetracked there. I wanted to return very briefly to John Bell Hood. The reason for that is one point and one alone, because a book I read a few days ago or went through, because there's not much reading, mostly pictorial, brought to focus in my mind something I've seen in a number of books lately and most recently in Richard M. McMurray's book, John Bell Hood and the War for Southern Independence published by the University Press of Kentucky in 1982. The point made by McMurray is this. Hood 
was in charge of the defense of Atlanta and then had to evacuate it. Before he evacuated it, he did something that was a part of Southern military policy, the scorched earth tactic. The um, railroad cars, locomotives, artillery, large supplies of and equipment of all kind, every building that might be of use to the enemy that could house troops and so on was burned or demolished systematically. As a result, the burning of Atlanta, something we seldom hear about, was begun by the Confederates. It was a part of the scorched earth policy to make it impossible for uh, Sherman to continue his march through the South. Now, Sherman retaliated with his own scorched earth policy and much more ruthlessly. So the burning of Atlanta, which was begun by Hood and the Confederate policy, was completed in a far more drastic way in the spirit of revenge and also to discourage the South by Sherman. It was far more drastic and devastating. Now I mention that point because history books are usually silent and various peoples are silent on what they have done to themselves. They're very eloquent about what an enemy has done to them, not what they have done to themselves. What brought that to my mind most dramatically was a book that I picked up, a very beautiful pictorial book, Photographs, out of print, published in 1980 by Alfred Knopf in New York. The title is In Ruins, The Once Great Houses of Ireland. The uh, photography was by Simon Marsden, and it was edited and with a text by Duncan McLaren. Now, the interesting thing to me in this book was that uh, two or three of the ruins were... Uh, the product of Cromwell's invasion. And this is, of course, something very much remembered to this day. As uh, Otto Scott has observed a time or two, uh, his grandmother, who was Irish, had a great uh, and passionate malediction, the curse of Cromwell be with you. Well, the interesting thing that comes through in this book is that most of the ruins were burned in the 20s, particularly 1921 to 23, during the time of the Troubles. As Otto observed, and he is half Irish, the Irish did it to themselves. Now, this is an interesting fact. What Cromwell did, which was about three or four places at the most, is still remembered. 
what was done during the Troubles is not remembered or talked about. Very sad. By the way, let me add that most of the destruction in history has been accomplished in this century. Most of the ancient churches, palaces, castles, and so on have been destroyed in our century, the darkest age in all of history. And the devastation has been dramatic. One can say, I think, just throwing this out, but I feel reasonably sure that more destruction has taken place from the French Revolution to the present than in all of previous history. The great destroyer has been modern humanistic man. Now to return to another subject uh, we discussed recently. I dealt with uh, the book about Freud by Masson. Now there comes a book about Masson himself. Uh, Jeffrey Musayef Masson, a Sanskrit a scholar and also a psychoanalyst who was in charge of the Freud archives, brought out some very ugly facts about Sigmund Freud. Well, the gist of this book, which was published in part in The New Yorker, is uh, simply this, the attitude of uh, most psychoanalysts is, so what? It doesn't make any difference to us whether his theory was based on false premises or not, we like it, and for us it is true. On top of that, this book, titled In the Freud Archives by Janet Malcolm, is as snide a book as any. I'm going into this because if you hear comments that uh, supposedly the book by Masson has been... Uh, debunked. Uh, don't you believe it? Uh, this book is very subtle. Janet Malcolm uh, quotes Masson at great length to bring out points which uh, she uses uh, against Masson. For example, she quotes uh, Masson as saying, of course, many people were offended by my manner. They found me arrogant, brash, impatient, intolerant, too critical, too Jewish, and so on. Now, simply by quoting Masson, uh, she gets in uh, a point that uh, if she had brought up on her own, would have led to charges of, well, are you hostile to Jews? But no, she quotes Masson and makes the same point. She deals with Masson's family background, and so on. The gist of this book is that it does not challenge Masson's thesis at a single point. All it does is to try to undermine Masson's reputation. We are told that 
and I quote, Jeff is a connoisseur of rejection, unquote. Well, so what? There is nothing wrong with a thesis. In fact, Malcolm's book only confirms the truth of what Masson wrote. It's a snide book, the kind of thing that unfortunately gets too much attention. Now to a far better book, Thomas Sowell, S-O-W-E-L-L, the prominent black economist now at the Hoover Institution, has written an excellent book on civil rights, rhetoric or reality. It was published for 1195 by William Morrow and Company in New York in 1984. And his thesis, of course, is that however well-intentioned the Civil Rights Act was at the beginning, it is now a farce. Let me add, in case you don't know it, uh, Thomas Sowell is a black economist. He says that 70% of the population now receive preferential treatment. And he says the premises of the civil rights vision are radically false. They are alien to the free market premise. They assume that evils are caused by society. They believe that the key to improving the lot of those on the short end of differences in income is political activity. The civil rights vision is a belief in the innate inferiority of blacks, and therefore the difference has to be made up by law. Whereas, of course, Sowell believes with freedom and a free market, blacks can take care of themselves. He deals with the change in the meaning of civil rights and how it has moved from rights to quotas. He has a telling chapter on the courts and their interference with the schools. He deals with the mythology about the black family and how it is not any slave past, but it has been modern welfareism that has destroyed the black family. He deals with the subject of IQ tests. He has a section, by the way, on women and ERA on the subject of so-called unequal pay, which he debunks. He deals with the idea of comparable worth. And he goes into the fact that the civil rights movement has gone from the idea of equal rights to special privilege. The last section is very interesting because what he deals with there are attacks against himself and how false they are, how he is misquoted, how one columnist quotes him as saying, I did all this on my own with hard work, so I don't want government to give any lazy bastard anything. 
something he never wrote, but supposedly it was quoted from his book by a reviewer. And he has been accused of all kinds of things uh, that he never did and given no opportunity to answer. He speaks about the irrelevance of evidence to these liberals. It's a very important book and thoroughly well worth reading. Now I'm going to deal very briefly with another book which I think is not particularly worth reading. Jane Jacobs is the author. She wrote some years ago, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, The Economy of Cities, and so on. And she has written some good books and excellent essays. This is not one of them. The title is Cities and the Wealth of Nations, Principles of Economic Life, published by Random House in New York in 1984 for 1795. The gist of uh, what she says is that the rise and decline of wealth is to be judged by the rise and decline of the great cities of a country. So that if cities deteriorate, it's because the whole country is deteriorating. So we have to take care of our cities. The cities are basic to the economy. And as a result, the cities create over their surrounding region a prosperity or a depression. Now, there are some things in the book which are not bad, but basically there's a fallacy in the book. As she deals with America and raises the question, is America in decline? After all, some of the cities that she deals with are clearly in decline. New York is a very obvious example. The question then comes to mind, well, let's assume for a moment the health of an economy can be judged in terms of its cities. What Jane Jacobs is doing is what most politicians do. The politicians look at the world in terms of the past. In terms of the past, where is the center of things? Well, it's the Atlantic. This means Europe, and it means the east coast of the United States and Canada. This is the center in terms of political thinking. But the simple fact is it is no longer the real center of the earth. Economically, the center is now the Pacific. So if you want to take cities as a criterion, and look, for example, at Seattle and Portland and Los Angeles. These cities are clearly healthy, growing, and very much alive. 
But New York, Boston, and other cities along the Atlantic seaboard are in trouble. When you consider the trade there is in the Pacific, which far outweighs the Atlantic trade, it's staggering. The difference is enormous. You not only have Alaska, which is increasingly important, and Western Canada, and Vancouver is becoming a center of entrepreneurial financing, and the whole of the Pacific Coast, but you have on the Pacific Coast of the United States, California. If California were an independent country, it would be the sixth or seventh most important country in the world in terms of population, in terms of natural resources, in terms of agriculture, in terms of industry, and so on. Then you have to consider Japan, South Korea, and to an extent still Hong Kong, emphatically Singapore, definitely a world center. You have to consider also Australia, fast becoming very important. Taiwan, very, very important. And the whole of the western side of South America. This is where the action is economically. Washington is still living in terms of the past. And Jane Jacobs doesn't tumble to the fact that, yes, cities and the wealth of nations may have a relationship, not exactly as she sees it, but if she wants to see where the wealth of the world is today, she had better look to the Pacific Basin. This is where the action is. And as things are going, both Europe and the eastern half of the United States are going downhill. It's the area of the greatest controls. Consider New York, rent controls and other things that have helped destroy that city. It's hardly a part of the United States with the kind of situation that prevails legally in New York City. Well, on to another book. This by Richard John Newhouse, N-E-U-H-A-U-S, The Naked Public Square, Religion and Democracy in America. Just published for 1695 by William B. Erdman's publishing company in Grand Rapids. This is not a book I would recommend. The Naked Public Square for Newhouse is his way of saying uh, the uh, civic area the civil area. He says in his uh, preface, the moral majoritarians would claim that the naked public square 
is the product of a conspiracy by secular humanists. There is limited merit to this claim, very limited. Another factor of great significance is the abdication or final disestablishment of mainline Protestantism, unquote. And he said, what we have now is something new. For the first time, political doctrine and practice is excluding religion, we would have to say Christianity, because humanism is the new religion of the public square, uh, from the conduct of public business. The argument is that America is a secular, non-religious society, and in terms of that, Christianity has been separated from the state. Well, Newhouse concedes many, many things to our side. Uh, but everything he concedes, he then turns around and undermines. What he recognizes is that today, fundamentalism or Bible-believing peoples are increasingly becoming a political power in the United States. This he does not like. He recognizes that they have a valid claim, namely that they are cut out from public life, and Christianity's claims are being systematically denied. He recognizes that the liberal churches are increasingly dying. But his attitude is it's dangerous for these moral majoritarians to win. They have the power, but if they have any common sense, they will listen to us good liberals and come and work in conjunction with us because we have the best sense. It is as pharisaic and uh, silly a book as I have read for a long, long time. Now to go on to something else rather grim. You will recall a while back I dealt with Moser's book on Red China, on a systematic murder of unborn babies and some born ones in terms of the policy of one child per family. This is the most brutal policy enforced with the utmost brutality. Now, did you know that the United States has been financing this? Part of the financing for China's population policy has come out of your pocket. If you want the documentation for this, it's in an issue of Action Line, Christian Action Council newsletter, for May 22, 1984. Write to Action Line 422 C Street, Northeast, Washington, D.C., 20002. 
Write and ask for a copy, but not unless you send them at least $5, because they have to survive too. Now, let me read just a few paragraphs from this. The House of Representatives responding to reports that the Chinese government is compelling women to have abortions. On May 9, approved restrictions on USA to China's population control program. But critics of China's forced abortion policy charged that the measure was not stringent enough because it would permit American dollars to go to the Chinese program through international population control agencies. The amendment adopted by the House prohibits the agency for International Development, AID, from giving money directly to the Chinese program. But it allows AID to fund organizations who then turn the money over to China's population planners. The United Nations Fund for Population Activities, UNFPA, for example, will give $50 million to China's population program over the next four years. One quarter of that money will come from the U.S. Representative Chris Smith, Republican New Jersey, sought to block this indirect funding by offering an amendment to the foreign aid bill that would prohibit AID from giving money to any organization that contributes to China's population control program. Smith told his colleagues that his amendment would force agencies like the UNFPA to choose among three courses. First, they can exert their considerable influence and clout to exact reforms in Chinese population policy, Smith said. Or second, they can disengage and get out an unambiguous message to the Peking government that the world community will not tolerate coerced abortions. Or thirdly, UNFPA might decide to continue on in China without our aid. There is much more in this uh, issue of Action Line about what is going on in China. There is also a great deal more on the abortion issue. One of the points uh, brought out is that Gareth Jones, in his newly released book published by InterVarsity Press, Brave New People, comes out in favor of abortion. Now, I mention this because InterVarsity Press is the highly praised campus ministry to the campuses in this country and across the world. The InterVarsity Press also publishes the most popular books on campus among students. These include the works of Ron Sider, the liberation theologian who believes God is a Marxist. In this book, Gareth Jones uh, is not convinced that unborn children are a human being. He also finds humanness an elusive concept.
Well, that's a fine uh, conclusion, isn't it? And then he says, this is the kind of double talk so many churchmen indulge in, because, and I quote, because he does not believe that human beings in the womb uh, to be in the image of God, Jones concludes, quote, our view of the fetus should be a high one, but it should not be an absolute one, unquote. He consequently defends what he calls therapeutic abortions. He defines therapeutic as any abortion undertaken for medical reasons. These include all abortions performed on women whose pregnancy threatens their physical or mental health which means the same policy we have now. Well, so much for that very unpleasant subject. Now on to something else. Uh, I have here a report by Senator H.L. Richardson of California's State Senate. By the way, Bill, when he telephoned yesterday, was telling me that inflation in Argentina now is 500% for the year, 60% a month. But this release of his for June 8, 1984, uh, is very telling. Believe it or not, I'm quoting, legislation has been introduced granting the judiciary the ability to sentence a criminal to home incarceration. I can see it all now. The courtroom is tense with excitement. The defendant has been found guilty of burglarly and assault with a deadly weapon. The judge leans forward and glares down at the defendant and says, Jones, you have been found guilty, and it is my duty to impose sentence. Jones, go to your room. Oh, Lordy, Judge, no, not that, no. The defendant screams. Jones then collapses in a sobbing heap on the courtroom floor. Judge, the defendant's lawyer, shouts as he explodes from his chair. That's cruel and inhuman. Everybody knows Jones doesn't make his bed, and he rarely empties the ashtray. The floor is covered with candy wrappers, and his mommy refuses to tidy up after him. Besides, his room is all cluttered with car radios, stereos, and TV sets he's found over the years. Can't you find it within your heart to give him straight probation instead of this awesome burden? The judge's teeth, eyes have a steely glint, his jaws locked rigidly, and between his teeth he replies one crisp word at a time, justice must be done. It's been a hard life on the bench since Jerry Brown appointed me, but somebody's got to do it. The bailiff helps the sobbing Jones stand up and slowly ushers him to the exit. Go home, James. Do not go to jail. Do not go to prison. Do I collect $200 for passing jail? Jones asks. What do you think this is, a game? Angrily asks the bailiff as he deposits Joan on boardwalk. All jokes aside, the Joint Committee for the Revision of the Penal Code has developed its solution to our overcrowded prisons and jails. Its suggestions were not to find ways to incarcerate felons, but to find alternate ways of sentencing. 
the jails are overcrowded because of tougher sentencing laws, that the conservatives have jammed through the legislature, the election of George Duke Majin as governor and the defeat of liberal judges in elections. Our prison population has increased by over 12,000 new inmates. And lo and behold, the crime rate is decreasing. Surprise, surprise. There is a corollary between the number of criminals in jail and diminished crime. Instead of rushing to build new prisons and finding temporary housing for criminals, the liberals and moderate members of the legislature are introducing bills which give judges ways of justifying probation instead of sending them to jail. Senate Bill 1658 by Senator Ken Maddy, Republican of Fresno, is just such a bill. It sets up as a state policy home incarceration instead of jail or state probation. The legislature has been dragging its feet on prison and jail construction and refuses to use sufficient general fund money for the construction of prison facilities. Let me add parenthetically, measures were passed to raise fund by bonded indebtedness for such construction when it is there. Instead, they propose general obligation bonds and saddle the public with more debt, which they succeeded in doing. This places the blame on the public if they don't approve the bonds. Meanwhile, the legislature is dreaming up alterna alternative plans to put the feelings back on the street as quickly as possible, and they use the overcrowded jails as an excuse. Fortunately, the public is getting smart. They are beginning to recognize that the legislature has a monopoly on who goes to jail and who doesn't, and it is a game. The public is starting to win." Unquote. Well, a while back I cited the fact that California has a law which makes it uh, crim a criminal offense to kill a rattler unless your life is being endangered by the rattler. Let me say that California is not unique in this kind of legislation. Everything like this that I've thrown out, I sooner or later find out, is being quietly and slyly introduced all over the country and sometimes was made law before uh, we ever introduced it here. Now, uh, here's this item from the intellectual activist for March 31st, 1984 that I had been meaning to pass on to you and forgot. A 400-unit retirement village in New Jersey cannot be constructed until snake pits are built to shelter the corn and pine snake according to an order by the state's Department of Environmental Protection. The two endangered species are being threatened by the housing construction." Unquote. Well, everything seems to be endangered, according to these people. And there's good grounds for questioning that type of statement. Sometimes it's true, and very often it isn't. Now to an item that uh, I'd like to call to your attention. One of the things that offends me 
when I watch television is that periodically there will be an ad by some outfit that is selling cut-rate long-distance calls. You uh, pay a lot less per long-distance call, and this is supposedly a bargain. Well, it sounded like a good thing the first time I heard about it, but when I investigated and found out what was involved, what I realized was that it was theft that was being peddled. What these outfits do is to use a loophole in the law, lease what lines, and then, having a flat rate for long-distance calls, turn around and sell long-distance calls to you. Now, this is dishonest. It's theft. Your telephone rates are going up, and they will continue to go up, and service will be declining because the one place the telephone company does make money is on long-distance calls. The long-distance calls have been keeping the rest of their operation alive. We're going to have our pay phones uh, increased in cost from a dime which it has been for 32 years, in spite of inflation, to 20 cents. The phone company wanted a quarter. Why? They've been losing 300 million a year on them. And part of it, of course, is the vandalism, too, that uh, public pay telephones are subjected to. Well, Congress and the courts have both sustained these thefts by these long-distance carriers to undercut telephone rates. So the problem for the phone company will increase. It used to be, until recently, that you could call a telephone company and uh, get new service installed overnight or at the most in a few days. Now you wait, and you wait a long time because they are understaffed, they cannot afford the help they once had because they're losing money. Well, this interesting item, uh, which you perhaps saw in the press, at a Senate hearing uh, just this month, there was a, uh, a move to create a 16-member commission to study the relationship between rising illiteracy and classroom methods of teaching, reading, and other academic skills. According to the Senate, one-fifth of all American adults are functionally unable to read, write, and compute in the workplace and the marketplace. One-fifth, this was the statement by Senator Edward Zorinsky, a Nebraska Democrat and the bill's principal sponsor. Another 32% of all adults are only marginally literate. Now this is a statement by a liberal senator. This means 52% of all Americans 
are either illiterate or semi-literate. And the situation is only growing worse. Meanwhile, public schools keep assuring us that they have the solution and any attack on them is an attack on education and our future as a country. Now on to something else that uh, I'll touch on rather briefly, but very horrifying. In the New Republic for June 18, 1984, there is an article that Otto Scott called to my attention. It's by Barbara and Michael Ledeen, L-E-D-E-E-N, The Temple Mount Plot. The subtitle, What Do Christian and Jewish Fundamentalists Have in Common? The article is about the Temple Mount, where there is at present a mosque, the Dome of the Rock. It is on the site of the original temple of ancient Israel. Access to this mosque is restricted. Only Muslims can go there. Up until now, Israel has respected that. But now there is an erosion in the legal position of Israel. On top of that, on March 10, 1983, more than 40 Jews suspected of planning to penetrate the Temple Mount were arrested in Jerusalem. Four of them were armed youths caught trying to break through an underground passage to the Mount. Their legal fees amounting to $50,000 were paid by wealthy Christian evangelicals from Texas. Then on last January 27, 1984, there was another attempt with explosives and grenades to blow up the Dome of the Rock. The whole idea on the part of these uh, Christian and Jewish fanatics is to blow up the mosque, then to take over and build the temple which they believe will then precipitate the second coming. As though the second coming of Christ and Christ himself can be controlled by what man does, especially insane, fanatical men. The ugly fact is that uh, there are two or three prominent names among those who are behind this whole thing. It's a horrifying article. And the sad fact is that there is an erosion of the legal position of the immunity of the mosque in Israeli law. Now, if they continue to erode that and make it possible for anyone to move in there and to destroy the mosque, it is likely to precipitate very, very 
serious repercussions. The Arab peoples will not sit back and take it without action. And the fact that Americans are involved in this is an ugly fact. Well, now to something else. One of the uh, interesting uh, books, not altogether convincing, but with some good material in it, which I read in the past week, was Mary Fulbrook, F-U-L-B as in boy, R-O-O-K, Piety and Politics, Religion and the Rise of Absolutism in England, Wurttemberg, and Prussia, published by the Cambridge University Press in 1983. What uh, Dr. Fulbrook's study deals with is the fact that with Puritanism in England, then later the pietist movement in Württemberg and then also in Prussia, who had three strong movements that had a profound effect upon each country, but a very differing one. The Puritans became very, very active in the political sphere and for a time commanded it. In Prussia, they very definitely did nothing but support an absolutist state. In Württemberg, Württemberg, they for a time were very independent. Now, one of the interesting things here is that the Württemberg Church had a force and a power that the Prussian did not because it did have financial freedom. If you're poor and you're dependent, and the state then can control you. But if a church has financial freedom, it can move aggressively against evil, against tyranny. But a church that has to worry about making ends meet is not going to be very greatly concerned with the world falling around outside its doors because it's trying to keep itself going and its doors open. Then there is another factor here. Beliefs in the uh, Second Coming. The church at Württemberg tended, in spite of its freedom and power, not towards political activism, but to a passivity, because pietists were expecting Christ to come almost any time. And as a result, they were radically disarmed. As a matter of fact, one of the most important figures, in fact, the figure dominating the uh, pietist movement for decades through his teachings and writings was Johann Albrecht Bengel, 
Bengal's scholarship was immense, but very foolish at this point. His biblical and mathematical labors suggested 1836 as the year of the second coming. Well, with that kind of thinking, it's no wonder that all those who followed him were neutralized. They could not be relevant. After all, the world was going to end very, very shortly. Now, this is the kind of thinking that we have today, and we're facing a far more critical time than we ever have before. So, uh, it's well to remember that such thinking is very, very dangerous. Then, finally, perhaps, to another issue, the Supreme Court recently sustained a very deadly measure in the legislature of Hawaii, a land expropriation measure which would break up large estates in Hawaii and compel land reform, that is, parceling out land in Marxist fashion uh, to whoever wanted it, but ultimately this makes the state the owner because the state now has made it clear that land can be confiscated for any reason whatsoever. The U.S. Supreme Court went along with that. So our property rights are virtually gone. It was a very, very ugly measure. Now, to some other matters, well, let me see, our time is just about up, so I'll have to uh, postpone these other items to another occasion, because I'm afraid I'll run out of time. Let me say that uh, I do enjoy these sessions greatly, and as I read, I am excited by things I encounter, not only for my own purposes, but things I enjoy sharing with you. And I do appreciate your uh, responses and your uh, interest in various items that I have dealt with. It's always a joy to do these tapes. Thank you for listening again, and God bless you.